We are going to a passage in Psalms. Psalms, please, for our Bible study this morning. Hey, you've heard about this. You've heard about the phone scams that keep on raking through the area. You've heard about the one with the IRS call. You get a phone call that says this is the IRS. You owe us some money, and we'll take your credit card number over the phone, and you can settle the debt, or we're going to you know, come and impound things and take over your bank accounts. How many of you got that one? Okay, several of us did. Then you've also heard the one that often happens. A young man's on the phone. He says, Grandma, Grandma, and Grandma responds and says, Is that you? And gives a name. Yeah, it's me. I'm in jail. I you know, was on a trip, and I need money forwarded to it. Here's a new one that, that came up this week. We come into the office on, on Friday morning, and there's a message on the machine, and all it sounds, it says, is when I played it, was just 888444, whatever the number it was. That's it, and then it hangs up. You don't know if the person's in desperation for the, you know, did they have a heart attack? They couldn't say anything and they passed out. So we tried calling the number. When the, the secretary came in, she tried calling the number. We tried to track it down on internet, can't figure out what number it is. And so called the place and as they called, the, they kept on getting an answer, um, a busy signal. Busy signal, busy signal. And so our concern was maybe somebody did have a stroke. Maybe they had a heart attack. Maybe somebody's laying on the floor. We called the police and asked the police, gave them the number as best as we could understand the number, and uh, try to find out if there's somebody in desperate need. We found out, the police called us back and said, no, it's a new scam. What is a robocall, it's a 488 area code. And there is no 488 area code other than robocall. And so it's a robocall area code. They pretend to be in desperation, and then whoever calls back, they're assuming, is an individual who is very, very concerned that they would bother calling back, and then they hit them up for money. So you, you sit back, here's me. What's real and what's not real? When do, you, when do you react to help somebody out, or when do you say it's a scam? And it's so confusing to try to figure some of this out that you're just not sure. Here's another area that gets really confusing for people, and that is how to deal with family issues. What do you do with some of the family stuff that's going on these days? Oh, you, somebody will come and they say, hey, we got some real tensions brewing. There is conflicts between, you know, the relatives, the family, the parents, the kids, the husband and wife. What do we do? What do we do? And there's confusion. You know, how do we handle it? Some are getting confused. They have relatives who are outside the home that are treating them poorly, have done this for an extended period of time, have beaten them up, have talked about them, have attacked. Some of you have been in that spot. What do you do? Here's one that's coming up more and more. What do you do when one of the relatives announces that they are transgender or gay? How do you respond to that? Should you be involved in still that communication, that contact? What about going to the wedding? You know, those are, those are issues that are confusing for us. Some will call and sometimes they'll say, you know, I, I've, got an, I've got an elderly parent. And this elderly parent is so unreasonable. They want help, they want help, but they don't want the help that we can give. What they want is for one of us to move back into the house, but we have our own kids. What do we do? How do we handle this? You have some who are dealing with the idea of raising kids, bringing them up. And you say, boy, it's confusing. I try to teach, I try to instruct the children, but they don't seem to listen. Uh, and, and in fact, it just seems like it gets worse and worse. We try to discipline properly. We try to correct. And it gets like it's worse and they get madder. And all of a sudden we've got this explosion and a tantrum. And so it doesn't, where, where do we go from here? Or some of you are in this spot. Some of you teens, you just say, my parents are unreasonable. And some of your parents say, my teen has just never talks. We, we're in the same house, but we have no communication. And it's kind of like everybody is looking forward to the day when there's graduation and all of a sudden we can just move out. 
a lot of these things create a lot of different opportunities for people to come by and say, hey, can you talk? Can we sit and talk? And over the years, there's been a lot of conversations. Some of this is new stuff, but some of it is still the old, same old, same old issues. But there is one phrase that over the years, it gripes me. It irritates me. It just causes you know, me to just go like this. When people sit there and they start the conversation like this, they've got problems with their kids, their kids aren't listening, there's conflicts, the kids aren't, aren't really serving the Lord. It's just, just you can see, you can, you can see, there's just tensions there in the home. And they start off with this line. They say, the kids are good, but... And, to me, and it always grates me. Now, I understand sometimes the context is appropriate. But it grates me that where they're starting from is the wrong starting point. A lot of people have come to the point and the confusing point that says, as long as I raise good kids, then. We're, we're not called as parents to raise good kids. We're called of God to raise godly kids. The world can have all kinds of good people in it, but that doesn't mean that they are saved and serving Jesus Christ. We are supposed to raise kids that just aren't good at academics, that are good at getting a job and having a career where they can support us when we're old. Okay. We're not supposed to just raise good kids who will vote at all different times and who will you know, try to hold a job and get a nice house and da-da-da-da-da-da and most of all provide us grandkids. We're supposed to be raising godly kids. That's got to be the goal of every parent. From the time that you bring the child home until the time that they exit your home, and even then you're praying for the same thing. Help them to be godly. And there's a world of difference between just being good and being godly. And there's a world of difference as parents and parenting from raising a good kid and raising a godly kid. And it seems like a lot in the Christian community don't know the difference or worse yet, don't know how to do it. Because as we go through and watch families, there are a lot of families that have raised kids who are not serving Jesus Christ. Why is that? What happened? I want to embark on a series that I've got to tell you I'm very hesitant to embark on. I have pushed this off for an extreme period of time because there's a lot of people here who don't have kids. They have already done the job, they're over with it. Or they aren't allowed by the Lord to have kids. Or they aren't even married and there's a lot of kids in this room with the teens who they could care less on how their parents should raise the kids unless I tell them, let your kids do what they want. Okay. So there's a lot of disinterest already at this point in this auditorium. And yet I really firmly am convinced this is so incredibly needed, more periodically than what I give attention to, that we stop, we pause, and we talk about having godly homes. Homes where we model, homes where we train, homes where we are portraying godly, what it means to have godly kids. Homes where Christ is promoted and when the kids graduate, their desire is first and foremost, what career does Jesus Christ want me to take? Homes where kids will leave and they will know how to look for and who to look at for a godly choice of a mate. And then they can establish a godly home. And they will raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so we need to talk about this. But it all goes back to having a right foundation. By the way, this right foundation in, in building a home is true of every area of our life. You never build anything without a good foundation. I remember one of our members telling us once that they went into a home that was recently built over in this direction of our community and um, it was a, only a few years into the house and all of a sudden the big window, the front window started, hang, it started separating if you would and started leaking. And so they had to have somebody come in and look at it and here that big picture window, there was no wood, nothing underneath. 
it was just attached at the sides of the two by fours and then the drywall that was it that was holding this big picture window. There was no security, no foundation before that, below that window. So over a period of time it started dropping. Every place we've, time, we've built here at this property, there's been grave concern over the foundation. They've come in, they've blasted, they didn't want to work with the limestone that was there. Me, in my mind, we could save thousands of dollars just build on top of the rock. No, no, we've got to make sure that this is solid rock. It's at a certain level, and they build the foundation. By the way, this, as I said, applies to all areas. One of our girls, when they were young, they both wanted to do piano lessons. And so one of them that wanted to do piano lessons, we sent them off to the piano teacher. And so they'd come home, and there was a pattern after several months that they'd come home, and they would be playing at the piano. My wife would say, listen, you're playing, that's good. At least you're playing the piano instead of arguing about the practice. But you should be doing your workbook. I don't, I don't need my workbook. I don't want my workbook. And so there went a period of time that was like we had to force and pull hen's teeth to get them to work through their homework book, their piano homework book that the teacher was giving them. And we asked the teacher, are they able to get Yeah, They seemed to come in and they got it. And then the child after a period said, I'm not interested anymore. That's okay. If, if you don't want to play piano, if you're not interested, if you, you know, that's fine. We're not going to force you to do something that there's no vested interest. There's no biblical principle that says you must play piano. And so, though something different, there is no biblical principle. And so we let the child go until the child came back another year later and said, I'd really like to pick it up. Well, this time, you know, you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to do these things. If you make that commitment, you've got to follow through. Yeah, I want to do it. Well, we changed piano teachers because of circumstances. And it wasn't a matter of just a couple of weeks the piano teacher called us and said, did, did so-and-so have piano lessons before? Yes. Well, there's a problem here. They are going totally by, by, uh, by the ear, by ear. Uh, and, and they've never learned to read music at all. So that period of time, what they were doing is she, she would sit at the piano teacher, listen to the piano teacher play it, go home and mimic it and copy it, or listen to something and just kind of play it, but never learned the basic foundation of reading music. And so that piano teacher started, changed, started dealing with it, made all the difference in that child's ability as time went by, learning to be able to do that and lay the right foundation. That's true in so many things of our life. It is true in every area, including family. In Psalm 127, we read this passage already, as a group when we started the service. We read it and we started off with those phrases, except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. It is foolish for you to rise up late, uh, early, to sit up late. And by the way, I have written my Bible, amen, amen, amen. It is foolish to rise up early. Anything before noon is wrong. Okay? <laughs> That's my life's motto. I don't live by it, but I love it. Okay? And then he goes on, talks about it, and he's going to give his beloved sheep, I mean sleep, he's going to give them to them. Okay, so he promises all this. This is an important passage because what it does is it gives us a basic primary principle for all of life, for all of life, but I'm going to target this morning, just for the sake of a study, I'm going to talk about raising kids. Okay, but it's true of all areas of life. Here is the foundation principle that is so critical in all we do. It goes like this. According to this text, without God you're going to fail. Without God, you'll fail in, put in whatever you want. Without God, this text says, except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. Without God, you're not going to have this great marriage. Without God, you're not going to raise godly kids. In fact, we'll take it a bit further. With the Lord, with the Lord, you have a good chance of success. However, it's not guaranteed. There are other things you need to put into it. But only with the Lord can you possibly succeed in raising godly kids. This principle was so important that the writer, we think it's Solomon, he repeats it again in the next psalm. 
And in the next psalm, he builds upon it where he talks about it and he says more about that family unit. Go to chapter 128 or Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord that walks in his ways. For you shall eat the labor of your hands and happy you shall be and it will be well with you. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay, what do you mean this passage is talking about family? The other one talked about the home. This one doesn't mention it at all. Pastor, where are you going with this? Alan and Barb Newton, missionaries that are here with us that some of you have yet to meet, they'll be speaking, he'll be speaking this evening. They were telling us about an experience they had years ago when they came to America for the first time with their son, now son-in-law who was Portuguese, who is Portuguese and knew English but had never visited America before. They come to America, they're down in Florida and they're going to a church service and in the church service that's there the young man can understand English real well so he knows what's going on. But he heard for his very first message in America, he heard this type of message. The preacher stood up and as he, as he got behind the pulpit he pulled out a yardstick. And in, this, in the course of the conversation he's saying this is the standard of measurement. Then he pulled out a meter stick whatever they call it, okay, they pull that out and he's comparing the two and he says the yardstick is the standard, the meter is not, a, is not a real good standard to go by. And he went on to preach that those of who use the meter are adopting the mark of the beast according to Revelation. And so all those people who are following that system are going into the anti-Christ, anti-God one world system where those who use inches and feet we must be the sacred people. Okay. Now this young man sitting in the service listening to this is from Europe. What form of measurement do they use? Yeah, that means everybody in Europe is damned and doomed. Okay, that they're going into this metric system. The preaching got all done and boy that was powerful stuff. Got all done and Newton said we walked out kind of with our heads bowed not sure what to say to the young man and Mark says, I think I didn't understand what he was saying. I'm confused. And they said, no, you understood what he was saying. He's confused. Okay. <laughs> now, just to make sure that I am not making something up out of the text, follow the text with me. It is a family passage. It is not something that we are just, you know, sucking out of our thumb is our proverbial saying of twisting scripture. This passage does talk about the family. In fact, it goes a little bit further. He talks about blessings upon people. Look at the next couple phrases. Your wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of your house. Your children shall be like olive plants round about the table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that fears the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. Thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. You shall see your children's children and peace upon Israel. There is family involved. In this passage, in this text, to get the point of it, he is talking about God blessing you. That's the whole gist of it. He mentions it four times. He uses two different words in the original language. He uses Asher and Barak. The idea of God blessing, giving peace, giving joy, giving contentment. It is the idea physically and spiritually. Having a joy, a peace, a contentment, a happiness. Blessed. Blessed is the individual. God's going to bless this type of person. He's going to shower his blessings upon him. And then what he does is he goes through and gives some specifics of what type of blessings God will give. And he talks about a variety of them. Okay? He wants wants the readers, readers like us, to know what, what type of blessings can we expect of God. And he goes on and he lists a number of them in this text. He talks about the blessings of God including, and I'm going to phrase it this way for sake of discussion, 
a, a sound mind, a, a, a contented mind. The idea of the personal state of mind, well, it would be well with you. The idea is one of satisfaction. The one is of solidness, that in inner peace, an inner, an inner stability in, in your, within you, that God is going to give that to an individual, to certain individuals, that he's going to give them that wellness, that fullness, that wholeness, if you would. He goes on. He mentions something else. In this text, he's going to refer to physical life. He's going to refer to strength. He's going to refer to the idea of long life. He mentions that you'll be able to labor. He mentions that all the days of your life. He mentions even in verse 6 that you will live long enough to see grandchildren. Now remember in that culture, that would be somewhat unusual at times, that the lifespan was a little bit lower. But he's talking about, and by the way, I'm not implying, I am not intending to give this idea that anybody who has any physical illness is outside the blessings of God. That any and everyone who doesn't, who lives a shorter lifespan, they must be not blessed of God. Those who don't have grandchildren, they must have no blessings of God. Don't mean to intend that at all. We understand that there are cases where some individuals are unable to have children. On, on some people, they have shorter lifestyles and they love the Christ and they serve the Lord. We understand that some are not able to work. Some do not have the ability to be able to walk and to talk like the majority of us because of some physical disability or inability. We understand that there are people who don't have all that fullness, but generally speaking, generally speaking, God is saying, okay, those who are going to oblige what I ask them to do, here's what I want to give back to them. I want to give them physical health. I want to give them long life. I want to give them the grandchildren. For the people reading this text back in that day, this was physical blessings which were really, really important because they were living in a different society than you and I. They were living in survival mode. Just to be able to go to work was so important because if you didn't work, you didn't eat. They didn't have the retirement plans. They didn't have the stores. It was critical. Can God enable me to be able to go out and plow my field, to go out and do it? So he's saying, I can give you some physical blessings. I can give you some emotional, some mental blessings. He goes on. He talks about, I'm going to bless even the efforts that you do. You're planting your crop. Will I send rain? Will I send you know, the sun appropriately so that your crops will grow? Will I help in protecting your crops, your beasts, your cattle? He says, okay, you will eat of the labors of your hand. You're going to have some fruitfulness and it's going to take care and I'll provide. And he says, you won't go hungry. He talks about another blessing to people living in that community of Israel, living in that land. He says, hey, listen, you're going to have peace upon your land. You're not going to see this warfare. You're not going to see these attacks. I will give you security as a, as a people who are living in my promised land. So he's promising the Jews a lot of these physical, material blessings that to them were really critical at that point. And he mentions the family as well. He mentions to them, I'm going to bring blessings upon your family, upon your home where I'm going to help your family to develop, to become that which is supposed to be my plan for your home. This is the idea that God says, I, I, I want you to experience what I intended for every family unit. He talks in this text about the family by talking to the dads, the fathers, the husbands, where he's already addressed them, and we know he addressed them because your wife shall, your children shall. You're going to eat of your labors. He's talking to the men. He's saying, okay, here's some of these blessings that I've already mentioned. They're going to come to you as the head of the household. Then he mentions the moms, the wives. 
He talks about them and how he's going to bless them. Verse 3, where he makes the comment, he says to them, he says, the wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of, thy, uh, of your house. Well, he's using an analogy that they would relate to. Some of us can't. We don't have the grapevines. We don't have those things growing around our house. But if we lived back in that day, we, we would understand this was very common language. This was like, you know, their, their, their really, really important crop that they would have. And he's basically talking about this vine. Now, if, if I say to my wife, you say, boy, you remind me of a creeping vine. I don't think that's going to be real positive in her mind. Okay? Boy, you're just like that poison ivy. No, that, that's going to go over like a lead balloon. But in that day, the vine was critical. It was essential to their everyday life. It was something that they had to have. They relied upon. It was so important for a number of reasons. They didn't have water like you and I have water. So they needed the fruit of the vine. That was their daily sustenance. That was, the, that was what they drank so they wouldn't get sick. They would use this, this wines, the, the fruit of the vine, to help relieve illness, to deal with, with stress, to provide refreshment. And so this, this fluid, this liquid is so important. The idea is basically like this. I am going to make your wife to be a fruitful vine. She's going to be able to have offspring. She's going to be able to provide for you and the family. She's going to make contributions. She is going to provide nourishment to the family. She's going to provide comfort. She's going to be refreshing to your family. She's going to be like a Proverbs 31 that we talked about last week. He is talking and saying, I'm going to bless your home. I'm going to help your family. I'm going to, if you do what I want from you, which we'll see in a minute, I'm going, to, I'm going to pour out some of these blessings upon you. These blessings will include some of these other activities that you're involved in, but they're also going to impact your family. It'll, your godliness will impact your wife, and she will become a nourishment to you and to the rest of the family. Then he talks about the kids. And in talking about the kids, he compares them to a tree that was very common in Israel in that day. This tree typically would take 15, 20 years to grow in that region of the world. This tree was typically what we would call gnarly and twisted. It wasn't the straight trees that some of us are used to here in this area that we would use for forestry. It was something that would have uneven clusters to it. And he's talking about the kids being something that was very, very common. He's talking about it and he's saying they're going to be like these olive plants or olive trees around your table. And so they're, they're, the Jews really considered this tree, the olive tree, to be so important. In fact, they talk about it in the Old Testament as being a beautiful tree. Most of you wouldn't have planted one back then. But this is a beautiful tree. In that same way, he's saying, here's how the kids are. The kids, aren't they at times, isn't this true? You know, the kids, even though they can, they can provide for us, uh, let me back up. The olive would provide for us in a lot of these different details. In that culture, in that area, they would use the olive from the olive trees in so many ways, in so many areas, perfumes, food, cooking, you know, medicine, all those things. In that same way now, he says, here's, here's your kids. Your kids can be gnarly at times. There's an amen and an amen at this moment, okay? The kids take a long time to become where they're mature, Okay? We, different than many other creatures and, and of creation, our kids take a lot more time before we, we get them out of the house than in most of God's creation. And they can become beautiful to the parents. They take that time to mature, but boy, they can bring refreshment. 
They can bring some soothing to us. They can be a medicinal point to our life even as we get a little bit older. They can be such a blessing to us. They can provide that great fruit. And he is saying that the kids, the kids that you are raising, whatever the number may be, even though it may take a long time, I'm going to bless your kids. And your kids will become something that will be a joy to your heart. Now, this isn't the only time we get this encouragement in Scripture. We get lots of different passages that talk about our kids becoming a blessing. How our kids can be a joy to us. How our kids can just be a spiritual highlight of our life. We read in Psalms that the children are a heritage of the Lord. And these talks about them being, being a, an inheritance and a blessing to us. We read, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. We read in scriptures that the father of the righteous, they're going to rejoice, not just a little, but greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in that child. We read in the New Testament, I have no greater joy, no better joy than to know my children are walking in truth. And a number of us can say amen, amen, because we had the opportunity. We were saved before we started rearing kids, so we had that privileged opportunity to be able to follow God's word and raise kids and watch our kids grow and serve the Lord. And there is no greater delight than to see your kids serving the Lord. Amen, amen, amen. That is a joy. And he tells us what a, what a blessing that is. The wise son makes a glad father. But then he gives this warning and admonition. He says, but you have a foolish son. The foolish son that you didn't drive the foolishness far from them. They're going to bring sorrow to your heart. He is telling us a reality of life that the kids can be a great blessing, but they can also be a heartache. They can bring some sorrow. They can cause you sleepless nights. They can cause you agony of the heart. They can cause you embarrassment with your friends, which should be your lowest of motivations, but it's there. He warns us again that the foolish son is a grief to the father and bitterness to him who bore him. And so we have to come to the point where we say, when it comes to family, what do we do? How do we handle this so that we avoid those heartaches when it's too late, when we can't go back and undo it What are we supposed to do in the midst of raising the family? What do we do in the midst of our life as we're planning a family? A number of here are planning to get married and start new homes. We only have six weddings this summer. Okay, they're, they're launching off. They're not thinking about kids necessarily right now, but there's foundation that needs to be set. What do I do to guarantee that our marriage is strong? What do I do to guarantee when and if the Lord gives us kids that our kids will be fruitful? that they will, be, they will be a blessing as time goes by. What do I do? What do I do? God said in this text that he can bless even of our labors. He can bless even in our relationship, in our society. What do we do? How do we act? What is going to bring such blessings? And especially as parents, what kind of parent must I be so that I can have this joy of a good marriage and a, and a good offspring that is really turned into godliness and righteousness? That being the word of God, by its standard, it is good and godly. What do we do? Here, let me just show you what the text reveals. The text says there's certain things that we must put into this, this effort. It isn't just that, okay, if you come to church, we're, we got this wealth and health gospel that says, okay, God's going to bless you, bless you, bless you. If you just you know, come to church here and put money in the offering plate, you're guaranteed. No. No, there is an involvement of having a relationship with Christ where there is an involvement of repentance. 
There is an involvement of changing ways. There is an involvement where you in your life are focusing on saying, okay, first and foremost, this is what I need to work on. I need to work on my relationship. Let me show you what this looks like, this relationship with God. First and foremost, what we're saying here is this right relations means you make God your priority. The very first thing mentioned in verse 1, when he's talking about blessings upon this household, blessed is everyone that first and foremost fears the Lord. The very first thing. The very first thing that we need to be respecting here is walking in his ways. The very first thing is, blessed, it doesn't start off saying, blessed is the person who has a nice pension plan. Blessed is the person who has the biggest house. Blessed is the person who has the sweetest looking chariot with those chrome wheels. Blessed is the person who has the greatest amount of gigabytes you know, coming into their house. He doesn't say that. doesn't even deal with that. He talks first and foremost about your relationship with God and it starts with having a fear of the Lord. Making God the priority of your life so that when you're trying to decide what do we do for college, first and foremost, if you want God's blessing, you put God first. What does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then what? All these things shall be added unto you. First and foremost isn't the degree and the money you will make. It is how do you serve and walk with God right now. That's your first priority. So a right relationship with God means I have Him as my priority. The right relationship with God is means I have a healthy fear of God. I have a healthy fear of God. I've been praying. I've been looking for the last four days for an illustration on the fear of God. I have seen some. I have thrown a lot in the garbage. And I've just said, Lord, how do I explain the fear of God? Is it a dread of God that it's just like, ooh, God's going to wipe me out? Well, there is some aspect of God could wipe us out. Okay. Is it just, is it an idea of, okay, you know, I, I, I'm going to be terrified. I'm going to be phobia of God. It is, a, it is a, an essential issue that we've, we answer. In fact, what does the Bible say about the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. What is that? What is that? If, if I'm going to see God's blessings upon my life, my career, my family, fear of the Lord is essential. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord. What does that mean? I think last night I saw it in action. Silly illustration, but maybe it'll help. It helps me to put it in perspective. Um, we helped Pastor Tony move yesterday to a different home here in town, and so they're homeless. They they have a home, but they're homeless for a little bit because renovations need to be done before they can move in the house. So we have the privilege of having them now in our house. <laughs> so last night, last night after we had a number of folk in, we uh, we said, okay, the kids need to get to bed, and so I got volunteered, and I gladly volunteered to say yes to give one of the kids a bath, a shower. So I have him in the shower, and I'm doing the shower thing, and I'm getting wetter than he is, and I'm not supposed to be in the shower, but I'm getting wetter than he is, and getting him, getting him all bathed off, and so the, there's, there's a faucet you can fool with on the shower head, and it was like, oh, what's this do? Papa, what does this do? What does this do? This means you keep your hands off Papa's shower. Okay, no, no, I mean, what does this do? And it's like, okay, you're all done, get out. Uh, no, no, hey, I, I need to test this all out, you know, test out, you know, no, no, you're done, I, I want you out. I, uh, give me a minute, Papa, okay, I'm just testing it out, just give me a minute. You're done. No, Papa, I still want to test it, and Papa, can you turn it on a little bit warmer? It's getting cold. Okay, 
Should I turn it to scalding? No. Um, so, <laughs> Papa. So, so I did the, the, the thing that, you know, I thought would work. I said, honey, you either get out now or I'm going to get your father. <laughs> Sat down, wiped himself off, you know, and it's like, whoa, I should have done this one before. <laughs> this, this really works. You know, he's getting all dressed, and I said, do you want me to get daddy? He says, no, 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 no. And he's, you know, well, now it's speed demon getting dressed. When it's all done, do you know who he ran out to? His dad. Went to the first person he went to, hopped on his lap, and started talking to his dad. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is having a healthy respect that I better do right or there's consequence. But at the same time, I want relationship. And I want to be close to. And I, want to, and, I, and I have full confidence I can hop in his lap and everything's okay when I'm doing right. That's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is us saying, I want to please him and I know if I get out of line, he's going to address it. But I can run to him at any moment with any need and if I am, if I am in need of comfort, he is the most comforting individual available. The fear of the Lord. He says that's what we need to have. We need to have an attitude that says, my God is first. This God is one that I need to respect and I need to follow and at the same time I can lean upon him. He is my refuge. He is the everlasting rock. This attitude leads me into saying a right relationship that I want to obey him. I want to walk in his ways. Yes, my ways are somewhat involved as I submit them first and foremost to his ways. And when he says I should do something, I should do it. That is a healthy relationship with the Lord that says I want to obey, I want to please. Can I throw something else? If I am walking after his ways, then I am seeking after in the sense that I am following him. I am wanting to know where does he lead, how is he leading, how big should those steps in the snow print be because I'm pursuing him. I'm following him. I want to be with him. We, um, we hosted in the last few weeks when Mike and the girls, were, Mike Attell was here, we hosted them at our home where they were in, in that area, gave them the privacy of the, of the downstairs. But the girls would be upstairs periodically, and so we'd decide, okay, we need to play hide-and-go-seek late at night. And so it was, okay, let's play different forms of hide-and-go-seek in the house. And I, I forgot, we moved to this, this new neighborhood, and I forgot that we never forewarned our neighbors that we turn off all the lights, give everybody flashlights, and then go looking through the house. And I'm sure that I've got to go back and talk to my neighbors as they saw flashlights going over the blinds of the house and unsure who's inside, you know, because all they see is different people coming and going. And so I need to tell them that if they see that, not to panic and call the police. Anyway, we're playing hide-and-go-seek, and as we're playing hide-and-go-seek, um, the, the issue was, okay, somebody hides, and then, you know, when we said the time was up, whatever, for hiding, it was like, run out of the one room and seek. And the kids would run into this room, take a glance, and run into another room, take a glance, run into another room and take a glance, and they were all over the place in pursuit. And so it was kind of cool. When the grandkids came over, we got involved with it, and we found new hiding places in the house. Don't tell Tony and Christina I hid the kids in the dryer. But um, it, they never got found. It was great. It was great. They never got found. You know. So he's in the dryer. Just I forewarned Deb not to turn it on. Um, but we, we had the kids hit and they weren't found. They weren't found. They weren't found. And the Tuttle girls were like, oh, they've got such a great hiding place. Yeah, that's true. They've got a really good hiding place. You'll never find them. you never find them. Then we started hiding their stuffed animals. 
And so we'd hide them in the, in the area, and then you guys go find, uh, gotta find the stuffed animals. And that became a whole game. But I noticed something that happens, that with a three-year-old playing hide-and-go-seek, the three-year-old doesn't get it. The three-year-old thinks they can hide something, and the sooner somebody finds it, the better. So the three-year-old hides the stuff and says, It's like, honey, don't tell them where you hid it. Okay. I'm not going to tell you it's in the bathroom. I'm not going to tell you I put it inside the dishwasher. Now we're talking about stuffed animals, not her brother. Uh, So, you know, it's... But she has the idea that she wants them to find something that's whatever they're seeking after. Well, Preston's in the dryer... They can't find them. Oops, I gave away the name. It's, yeah, it's Tony's kids. So Preston's in the dryer, and all of a sudden we heard this, you know, from inside the dryer. And I'm thinking, did it get turned on? <laughs> yeah. So I listened for that, thump, 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 thump. It didn't happen. Then I heard a, again. And the girls went running, thinking it's on the other side of the wall, and I said, be quiet. You're supposed to be hiding. Be quiet. The girls come back. Where is that sound from here? And then I hear a, woof. And his whole idea was, I'm hidden so well, you got to find me, got to find me. And he's giving clues. Okay. And so they pop it open and he rolls out and he's, you know, he's very well pressed. I mean, it really looks good now. Hair is like, (laughs) you know, in a way, God is semi-hidden. He's not right here in the sense of physically. But aren't we supposed to seek after him? And he's the one that doesn't want to be hidden from us. He gives us the clues. He gives us the bangs. He says, it's right here. So how is it with you and the Lord? That seeking after the Lord, how's it been going? A few, three weeks ago, we said, okay, increase your prayer life. Make a commitment to do some fasting. How's it been going? How's it been going where you are seeking after the Lord? Where you say, I want God's blessings upon my life. I want that relationship with Him. And I want to be close to Him. And I want to find His will for my life. I want to find His ways that I should walk in. How's it going? How's it going where this week you spent time praying to Him, reading His Word? Or is it that you just became so disinterested in the Lord that you're one of those that say, well, I'm just too busy. I don't have time for Him. My life is just so full. What happens, ladies? What happens if he says, I love you? I really love you, and I want you to marry me, and I love you so much. He tells you that. And then for the next two weeks, you never hear hide nor hair of him. No communication. Oh, he's in the area. He's close by. You see him bebopping around town, but he doesn't talk, doesn't answer your text, doesn't give you any information. Then he shows up a month later and spends an hour with you and says, oh, you are the dearest thing in my life. Please, you know, I'm looking forward to the wedding. We're going to have a great relationship. And then he's gone. You don't hear from him for three months. He's not around. He doesn't answer. No phone calls, no texts, no nothing, no notes, no nothing. Shows up after three months with a thing of flowers. Never says he's sorry. And just says, oh, I love you. You love me, don't you? You can't live without me, can't you? You're going to say, I do to him? For real? You would respond, ladies, by saying, he really doesn't love me. He really doesn't care. What do you think God thinks? When you don't come and talk with him, when you don't show up, but okay, an hour and a half a week. And even then, when we sing, when we do things, you know, there's a busyness of I've got to answer my text. 
And there's no, no reading his word. There's no prayer with him. There's no time with him. And you say, but I really love you, Lord. I really desire you. What does he think? How does he read your love language? You see, the person with the right relationship is a person who says, I want God. I want him in my life. I want to walk in his ways. I want to fear him and have a relationship with him. And I want to be close to him. And I want to have him bless me. And they also have right worship of God. A right relationship and a right worship. Watch how the text talks about it. The psalmist is writing... and. Not, not to be silly, but this psalm that's written is a psalm that was designed to be used for praise. So they used it. They used the song. It's one of the few that's called the Psalm of Ascents. As they were approaching Jerusalem with all their pilgrimages, they would sing these series of songs. And as they ascended up the roadway, coming in, and so it became a pilgrim song. And it became a worship song. It became part of their life. In that way, in that vein, that's what we talk about worship. We are getting to a point where we are praising God, where we are using, like the psalmist is writing this out. He's praising the Lord. He's using this as a hymn book. He's giving adoration at home. Do you really exalt God? Do you show a spirit of gratitude? Do you show an attitude of lifting him up? Let me take that thought. Let me build upon that. Do you promote God? That's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, listen, you want blessings? Lift up God. Listen, look for God. The Lord will bless you if you fear him, verse 4. He says, he'll bless you out of Zion. You shall see the good days all of the days of your life. He's saying he's going to do this if you are into this mode of exalting him, promoting him, elevating him. Do your parents. Parents with kids in the home, do you elevate God? Do you exalt Him? And I'm talking about more than, okay, we got to go to church. Do you on Monday exalt the Lord Jesus Christ by your actions, by your attitudes? When you're correcting your child, do you exalt God by pointing out that this isn't something that bothers me first and foremost, this is something that bothers God first and foremost? Do you, do you exalt that when you're correcting, you're saying they need to repent to the Lord because they've sinned against the Lord first and foremost, raising God to kids. One author put it this way. He was just talking about doing little things in the house to exalt the Lord. And he wrote this article in one of the Focus on the Family magazine. He says, your child's journey from 4 to 14 is very short. Christian parents need to put God into each day during impressionable times. As a father of five foster children, preschool teacher for X amount of years, and our father of several of my own offspring, we have been working on trying to teach children to hold on to God even during difficult times. He said, some of the things we did, we hang Bible pictures of Christ and his ministry in each child's bedroom. Children are often quicker to respond to pictures than they are to words. Teach your children how to pray personally. By the time a child is five, he should be able to speak several sentence prayers with a parent. Together, look for answers to his prayers. Please avoid correcting, criticizing, or laughing at your child's prayers. Those are serious things between him and God. Bless your child each morning. If you want to see some improvement in your family and your children, try this. I admit it sounds kind of funny, but it can work. Place your hand on the shoulder or head or repeat a blessing or a prayer from Scripture such as may the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you or may God strengthen you through the power of His Spirit in your inner being so that you walk in Christ or pray your own prayer. 
in your own words for that child that day, something simple, something short. This spirit of prayer can impress even the youngest children. Giving a blessing and prayer can also renew your parents' heart towards that child. Number four, take short God walks. Get outside into God's world several times a month where you and your child can be together and identify trees, capture bugs, look at scenery. Help your child to see the very creation that declares the glory of God rather than just sit with man-made inventions and, and technology. Purchase scripture cards from your Christian bookstore or write some yourself. Leave them on the kitchen table. Reading and memorizing God's Word as part of your mealtime habit is a great way to remind the family of God's presence at this table. Display your child's Sunday school papers, letting a, or junior church as well. Letting a, children, uh, letting a youngster's efforts die a painful death on the car floor can leave some hurt feelings. And displaying those things you get from church, are, are, uh, you are displaying that they are as important items as other items and creativity from school. Of course, none of these efforts is a guarantee that your daughter or son will know God, but incorporating some of these ideas will help be a daily reminder of his presence and his love. And they're simple but they can be tools that we purposely put into our lives with, along with others to try to impact and raise children for the glory of Christ. Here's what we get back to. Whether it be your family as a parent, whether it be your career, whether it be your marriage, whether it be you and your lifestyle, here's what you can come back to. To be blessed of God, which we all want, but to be blessed of God, we got to be a person that God can bless we got to be an individual who's walking close to him that's fellowshipping with him. To raise godly kids, here's where it starts. Here's your basic, basic principle. You have to ask yourself, what about you? I know what I want from my kids. I know what my kids should be. Oh, yeah, I want my kids to be mannerly. Well, am I mannerly? I want my kids to respect their mother, my wife. Well, then it comes back to, do I? Do I portray that? I want my kids to love the Lord. Do I have a love for the Lord? That's where we start. We have to go back to the very foundation is I can't expect more of them than what I produce, what I imitate for them, what I model for them. How is it between you and the Lord? What's it like? You say, well, wait a minute. I, my kids are growing. They're out of the house. What about your grandkids? What type of godly pattern are you modeling for your grandkids? You can be one of the greatest impacts upon their life by you showing them at this point of your life how important God is, that he wasn't just something in the middle of the heyday of the, of the years when we were busy, but he is still a vital part of our life now when we are in those later years that God is so important. The Lord Jesus Christ is our best friend. We run to him all the time. That's what this is talking about. These two passages are telling us we need the Lord we need the Lord. We must have the Lord. It starts with being born again. And if you have never asked Christ to be your Savior, that's where you start. Moms, dads, young people, that's where you start. You've got to have a relationship. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You want the blessings of God? It starts by asking Him to be your Savior. Repenting of your sin, knowing that you and in and of yourselves are not going to get into heaven that you're not that good, I'm not that good, none of us is good enough, that you need a Savior. Call upon Christ. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. He loved you so much, He died on the cross to cover all your sins. And now, after you've called upon Christ, then you build a daily walk with Him, a daily relationship with Him. I'm getting to that point, that age, that I'm starting to join the crowd of supporting the medical industry. Okay, little things. 
okay? Knee surgery a few weeks ago, kidney stones too often, happened twice, but way too, too often, two, two times. When I had the, uh, the last bout of kidney stones, they were pretty bad. I thought they were bad. So I get to the hospital, I'm rolling around on the floor, literally rolling around on the floor. And somebody comes up and asks a question. Alan and I were joking about, you were telling me about somebody, some comedian shtick about stupid, asking stupid questions, like, you know, and then they say, put the sticker that says stupid. And he said, you did it. You walked out of the hotel to one place, and there's a guy with a mop, and he said, oh, mopping floors? Stupid question. Yeah. You, know, you see somebody with a real, high, a real red sunburn, and you go, oh, been out in the sun? Stupid question. Okay, it's an obvious. Oh, in commercials now, it's what? Captain, Captain Obvious, you know, making those statements. Well, I'm rolling around the floor, and one of the nurses comes up and says, does it hurt? <laughs> okay. So they get me back in the area, and it, it, you know, they, were, they gave me you know, two shots of morphine, and I got off the cart because it hurt, and I'm rolling on the floor, and the nurse comes back and says, are you in pain? So, yeah. And then she started with this. Okay. <laughs> You've heard these. From a scale one, and I, you know, Sir, from a scale of 1 to 10, does it hurt? What would you say it is? 50! No, seriously, sir, 150! Give me more of that feel-good drug. Come on! And I'm not the only one that does that, right? Okay, I am the only one that does that. Okay. Let's rechange it. Let's do a scale this morning. Not about pain, but let me ask you a serious question. You and God. Scale it. How tight is your walk with God this morning? Oh, oh, before you give a full answer, why don't you consult God who is on this side? What number would he give you? If you want the blessings of the Lord, you should be excellent. How is it between you and the Lord? What's it like this day between you and Christ? How close are you?